Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Wednesday morning, March 1926. Bridget Riley is on her way to Mass in the seaside village of Malahide in North County Dublin. Bridget lives in the gate lodge of a big house called La Mancha. All of a sudden, the gardener at the house, Henry McCabe, hurries past her. He turns and says, Mrs Riley, there's something terrible up there. She asks him where, and he replies, La Mancha. La Mancha is burning. Hours later, six bodies would be taken from the house. Five of the victims came from the same small town in the west of Ireland. Four of them from the same family. After a long and sensational trial, one man was convicted of the crime. The house burnt down and they were all found to be poisoned prior to the burning of it, you know. He was Henry McCabe. He is the largest mass murderer in the history of the state, outside of political violence and troubles. From RTE Documentary on One, this is Murder at La Mancha. Still, there is that mystery of, like, what was this about and why did it involve such violence? And those questions really have never been answered. Although the case was a media sensation, covered in detail in the newspapers at the time, it was rarely mentioned again. In fact, the story of the six murders was even kept secret from some members of Henry McCabe's own family. My parents definitely didn't tell me anything and there was never any inclination about it. I'm Mary Frances. Uh, my mother was the youngest of Henry McCabe's children. I'm Henry McCabe's granddaughter. Mary was born and grew up in Wales and she discovered the secret of her grandfather by accident. We spent a lot of time in Ireland, but nothing ever was spoken, not a whisper about it. All the times. Then, a few years ago, Mary realised she was entitled to an Irish passport because her mother was born in Ireland. I'm now glad I've got my Irish passport, which I didn't realise I could get until quite recently. That's when I found out about my grandfather. I had to apply for the death certificate. I opened the envelope thinking I was going to find where the grave was so I could go and visit the grave. Next time I'm in Ireland, I found out he'd been hanged. The shock was tremendous. Tremendous shock. Since then, Mary's been struggling with the news of what happened to her grandfather. There was one cousin who I'm particularly friendly with. He has never actually mentioned this to me. When I got the death certificate, I contacted the same cousin just to confirm if it was true. I think I was just looking that it wasn't going to be him, truthfully, because it's a massive thing to have happened and I couldn't believe that he could have done it. Over the past 12 months, we've been looking at what is the largest mass murder in the state, outside of political violence, 
and the hanging of Henry McCabe for those six murders. And we've shared our research with Mary, hundreds of pages of newspaper reports, depositions and court transcripts, and we've asked legal and forensic experts to look at the case. We had two questions we wanted to answer. How could this seemingly ordinary man be convicted of such an extraordinary crime? And would this case be treated any differently today? Um, So I was in shock for a bit. Well, quite a bit, actually. And then I just thought, well, I've got to find out more. Henry McCabe was a small man, but he was strong from working outdoors all his adult life. When all this happened, he was in his early 40s and had nine children. The eldest was 19, the youngest just 10 months old. That was Mary's mother. From what I could see from reading the papers and everything, he seemed a nice man. You know, a man that uh, gave his, his wife the, the wages to, you know, to deal with, to look after the family and that. Henry's employers, the family murdered in their home at La Mancha, were the MacDonalds. They came from the other side of the country, from Ballygar in County Galway. We're just over the border from County Roscommon, East Galway. Paul Connolly is a historian who grew up near Ballygar. The 1850s seems to be when the MacDonalds came to this area and they developed a fine business here in Ballygar. Brian Scanlon's father worked for the MacDonald family business in Ballygar. They were builders, providers. They had a grocery shop. They sold uh, bicycles. And they also had a a ladies' and children's department. They were the first real middle-class Catholic family to emerge in the area. I have these photographs here of some of the staff. This is the the drapery shop here. Again, my father is here. They um, would have been very quiet, reserved, uh, kept themselves very religious, very conservative. Then, all of a sudden, in 1918, the MacDonalds moved away. They sold up their business in their 40s. Why, I don't know. It was quite unusual, all right. The MacDonalds moved to Dublin and bought La Mancha. Built in the mid-1700s, the house was on 30 acres of good farmland, close to Malahide Castle and the well-to-do seaside village, with its fine houses and a good train service to Dublin. The MacDonald family was made up of brothers and sisters, Peter, Joseph, Annie and Alice, all single in their late 40s and 50s. They lived at La Mancha with their farmhand James Clark and housemaid Mary McGowan. They employed Henry McCabe as their gardener. The McCabes had moved to England for a while, but returned to Malahide in 1910. Granddaughter Mary says Henry was popular and hard-working. He didn't seem to be a massive drinker. He liked a cigarette, you know, but he just seemed very family-oriented. People who passed him in the street, he seemed well-known in Malahide, but not for the wrong reasons at that time. The events kept secret from Henry's granddaughter Mary began to unfold during Easter week 1926. Henry made a number of statements after the events. They're voiced by an actor. Here he describes discovering the house on fire. When I arrived at the gate lodge, I noticed smoke issuing from all the chimneys. 
Before I got up to the house, I noticed a gush of smoke coming out of the bathroom window. I then ran up to the house and I saw the big gate leading to the yard open. I then ran straight to the kitchen door. I proceeded in as far as I could in the passage and found part of the stairs collapsed and in flames in the kitchen. The other portion of the stairs was burning over my head. I shouted up through the house but got no reply but only the noise of a fierce fire upstairs. I then ran back, running to the gate lodge, and I met Mrs. Riley on the road. I told her what I saw, and then I ran to the civic guard barracks and reported the matter. Three guards and Henry rushed out to La Mancha. When they realised how serious it was, the fire brigade from Dublin City was called. There was a lot of people already at the house by the time he returned. My name is Dr Jacqueline Bates-Gaston, forensic psychologist. Jackie is one of our experts looking at the case. I have got over 30 years' experience of working in the criminal justice system. The fire, of course, had caught hold at this stage. A lot of flame marks coming out of the chimneys. The house uh, seemed to be very secured with the blinds drawn and the shutters closed. The scene was chaotic. Nobody knew exactly who was in the house. The guards used a ladder to climb up to get inside. As each window was smashed, a gush of smoke and flame blew out. When the fire brigade arrived, the staircase had been burnt out. Barrister Patrick Gageby has many years' experience in criminal cases, including murder. There were multiple fires and a smell of paraffin throughout the house. After a couple of hours, the fire brigade managed to douse the flames and it was at that stage that the bodies of the deceased began to be found. Six bodies were found. Peter and Joseph MacDonnell, Annie and Alice, Mary McGowan, who was the housemaid, and James Clark. It was a bizarre and disturbing scene. Mr Clark, who was found in the basement, covered in his drawers and his vest, and it would appear that not only had he a savage wound on the left side of his head, but his face had also been wiped and wiped clean. And this was similar to the other bodies as well. Clothes had been taken off them, and in fact a large bundle of those clothes were found underneath one of the bodies. Others were found under lino, which had been sprinkled with uh, paraffin, there were very substantial forensics at the scene. My name is Tom Hennigan. I'm Director of Corporate Services at Forensic Science Ireland. Tom has over 40 years' experience in forensics. I have a particular interest in this case because I'm actually a native of Ballygar, County Galway, where the MacDonald family come from. The investigation seems to have been conducted entirely by the local Gardaí, there were no specialised crime scene examiners. There are no crime scene photographs, which I think would help us uh, understand what happened if they were available. It was quite clear as a result of the examination of the scene that there were very unusual aspects. Suspicions were therefore aroused at a very early stage. So who had carried out this horrendous crime and why? Belfast Newsletter, April the 1st, 1926. The newspapers were full of speculation. Malahide Holocaust. Double murder and incendiarism suspected. Civic guards baffled. 
Complete mystery surrounds a terrible tragedy in a blazing mansion house called La Mancha outside Malahide, County Dublin, yesterday morning. The police theory is that one of the occupants of the house had run amok, killed two of the men and then set the house on fire to conceal evidence of the crime. The mystery is unlikely ever to be cleared up as it is thought that the unknown murderer perished along with the victims in the flames. This theory was dismissed by the investigators but it would come up again during the trial. Postmortems were carried out initially and samples were taken. In Ireland in 1926, there was no forensic laboratory. There was no Garda Technical Bureau. The state laboratory did exist and they did analysis of the postmortem samples. The guards needed to establish what really caused the six deaths. The inquest was conducted in a public house, as most inquests were in those days and uh, evidence was taken from various uh, people at that stage. Opinions on the causes and spread of the fire were given by Lieutenant Power of the Dublin Fire Brigade. His evidence was that a number of fires had been started in different rooms. There seems little doubt that paraffin was used, given that a, a container which smelled of paraffin was found. But it turns out the fire didn't kill anyone. The pathologist did not find particles of soot in the air passages of any of the deceased. He was positive that all six were dead before the fire started. And it looked like the victims didn't all die at the same time. He also gave opinions on how long he thought some of the deceased had been dead. In the case of James Clark, he said he had been dead for more than three days and Peter MacDonald that he'd been dead for at least two days. I think modern pathologists would probably be more cautious. In the case of two of the deceased, James Clark and Peter MacDonald, he found the cause of death to be blunt force trauma to the head. The other four bodies were too fire damaged for him to state categorically what the cause of death was. But it was very likely that they'd all died violently. Evening Herald, April the 3rd, 1926. Sensational development in Malahide tragedy. Marks on bodies. Clues may show who was the aggressor. There was also a suspicion that at least some of the bodies had been poisoned with arsenic. It's not clear to me from reading the records how the suspicion that arsenic might have been used arose. Tom Hannigan. But certainly it's clear that the State Laboratory Analyst Peter O'Toole was asked to analyse the post-mortem samples specifically for arsenic. The bodies were then buried. All of the bodies except James Clark's body were exhumed about a month later and additional samples were taken. I would guess that it was because they wished to confirm the samples from the initial analysis. With every fresh development, the terrible Malahide tragedy becomes more amazing and inexplicable. The choices facing investigators were... Could it have been a gang of thieves? There were items missing from the house. Or one of the people living in La Mancha. Or was it someone else? After a couple of days, the guards decided that Henry McCabe, the gardener at La Mancha, was somehow involved. And one reason he drew suspicion was how he behaved on the morning of the fire. He didn't seem to be overly excited, overly panicked. Forensic psychologist Jackie Bates-Gaston. He was cool, calm 
and almost uh, detached from the event. Even when he said he turned up at the house and discovered the house was on fire, I think I would have been tempted to go in and rescue my employers at that point. A number of witnesses said, well, he just stood there smoking or with his hands in his pockets. Henry's behaviour in the days before the fire was also looked at. He, it seems, had spent much more time than usual in the previous four or five days there, sometimes not leaving before 10 o'clock. But a crime like this was surely completely out of character, as his granddaughter Mary explains. He seemed to be well thought of by his, the, the people he worked for. I don't know what happened. I, it is so out of character from what I my understanding of him. What made that happen on that day? If my grandfather was guilty of that, what on earth happened to make him do it? Because that didn't seem to be the person I read beforehand, you know? Henry made a number of statements in the days after the fire, and he went to La Mancha with the guards to help them with their inquiries. But any evidence against him at this early stage was circumstantial. When there is a case of circumstantial evidence, the guards will focus their attention on those who have a motive and an opportunity and the ability to have carried out the offence. And one of the first things they will do is they will strive to interview persons, in this case Mr McCabe, to see what they're saying and then measure every other piece of evidence against that. In spite of, or maybe because of, the statements made by Henry McCabe, just two weeks after the fire, the hard-working father of nine was charged with six murders. Limerick leader, April the 12th, 1926. Henry McCabe, the gardener at La Mancha, the house at Malahide where six people were found dead last month, was arrested on Monday night by the Civic Guard and charged with murder. He was remanded in custody and removed to Mountjoy Jail. Our experts believe that nowadays a suspect like Henry McCabe would be treated differently. Today we would do uh, an assessment of Mr McCabe in terms of him being the potential perpetrator. He didn't seem to have any learning difficulties. There was no evidence of abuse in the household. He had nine kids. Uh, he seemed to have what would be perceived from the outside as a reasonably happy uh, family life. So it wasn't that he was up to thieving or pinching or, you know, petty crime even. It looked as though he did an honest day's work. He kept his family. Um, they were good neighbours and decent people. That doesn't add up from a forensic psychology point of view because we would be looking for a trail of offences of antisocial behaviour leading up to such a, a horrendous act. So Henry McCabe didn't fit the profile of a crazed killer. The murders at La Mancha continued to make newspaper headlines all summer. Irish Times, 8th of June, 1926. Henry McCabe, the gardener at La Mancha, was again remanded, charged with the six murders... For months, the case made its way through various court hearings as the evidence was gathered and presented, and Henry waited in custody for seven months. After many court appearances and further remands, the gardener eventually went on trial. Irish Times, 9th of November, 1926. Malahide murder mystery. Trial of Gardner opens. The Central Criminal Court, Dublin, was crowded yesterday when, before Mr Justice Byrne, the trial opened of Henry McCabe, who was charged with the murder of Peter, 
Joseph, Alice and Annie MacDonald, and their servants Mary McGowan and James Clark at La Mancha, Malahide, County Dublin, on March 29th last. The prisoner pleaded not guilty. Mr Garrigan, KC, for the prosecution, said that the jury was called upon to discharge one of the gravest inquiries that had been investigated in that court for many years. There were 46 witnesses for the prosecution, 17 for the defence. He was the only person that was tried who faced three senior counsels. Historian Tim Carey has written about the trial and execution of Henry McCabe. The justice system uh, would provide a junior counsel for someone to defend themselves. And you're defending your life. And the state on this occasion had three senior counsels. At least two of the senior counsels were well experienced in crime. Patrick Gageby. So on the other side is Alexander Lynn. He was in his mid-30s. He did a very good job in a very difficult circumstances because not only were the prosecution team pretty um, heavy guys, but the trial judge himself uh, was not slow to weigh in against Mr McCabe. Whether he was absolutely guilty or not, uh, he had a very hard time proving anything otherwise. The prosecution case was that Henry McCabe was the only person with the means and opportunity to carry out the crime. This case was one of circumstantial evidence. Robbery seemed the clearest motive. They were wealthy enough. They estimated they had like a thousand pounds maybe in the house. So there's money around. So maybe this family was looked at as uh, worth a few bob. Brian Scanlon, whose father worked for the McDonald's back in Ballygar, says his father told him they weren't inclined to use banks. He did say that they didn't bank any money, that they kept the money on the premises in big safes. Maybe when they got to Dublin, they continued the same practice and maybe that was one of the reasons why the terrible tragedy happened. Barrister Patrick Gageby says the McDonald's had a large safe at La Mancha. They had lockets and bracelets and diamonds and whatnot. The men had gold watches and gold rings. There was very little money in the house when it was sifted by the Gardaí and no jewellery was found. So that's a possibility that McCabe was trying to steal the, the jewellery and the, the money that was in the safe. Mr McCabe, at the scene, produced a set of keys. Henry McCabe claimed in court that he had been asked by a superintendent to help find the keys of the family safe. He said, here McCabe, you are a lighter man than I am. The ladder was resting on a burned rafter. He said, go up there and see if you can find any photographs or... If you can get any keys, bring them down to me. I looked around and found a large bunch of keys in a trousers pocket. The trousers were hanging on a wall. It was a kind of cupboard in the wall. The superintendent said this conversation never happened. The difficulty about the keys is probably one of the singular aspects of the case. Because oddly enough, McCabe was wearing a pair of grey trousers belonging to one of the McDonald's inside when the guards opened the safe, was empty. Where did the valuables go? Where did the money go? That question would be answered years after the events of 1926. And all that could be found in there were some documents about insurance, income tax and the like. It was then locked again. A bit later, 
they went back and they looked at the surrounds of the safe and they found very similar documents to what they had found inside. There was a very logical conclusion that somebody had opened the safe at some stage prior to the arrival of the fire brigade in Gardaí, rifled through it, either taken what they wanted or not taken anything because it was just documents and had left them scattered around and then locked the safe again. The suggestion was that McCabe already had the keys on him before the fire even started. Another potential motive suggested was that McCabe was angry with the McDonald's. Because they were going to sell the house and he might lose his job. There's no rationale really for that as a motive. Even the sale of La Mancha, if it was going ahead, somebody's going to buy the house. They're probably going to want a gardener. You're more than probably going to have the same gardener that you've had before. That's Mary Francis, Henry McCabe's granddaughter. We understood from the gardener next door that he would be easily hired again by anybody else because he was seen as a good worker. That wasn't a big enough thing to, to kill six people for. I'm going to be feeling this, aren't I? In his statements, Henry introduced another motive. The idea that James Clark, the farmhand, was angry that the family had advertised La Mancha for sale and were planning to move away. I told Clark about the advertisement appearing in the paper and that the place was for sale for certain. From this moment, I noticed him very peculiar and continually talking to himself. Yet another idea Henry McCabe suggested was that a member of the MacDonald family could have been responsible. Alice was known locally as Mad Alice. And at times she would come into the garden with her hair streaming around her and she's screaming and generally appearing like a person in hysterics. At times, Peter seemed very abnormal in his manner and used to run round in a circle in the yard. Then, throwing himself down on the ground, he used to laugh like a schoolboy. The defence were effectively saying... Yes, this was an inside job, probably, but it was done by one of the members of the household. But there was no evidence that there was any discord or animosity between the members of the family. Paul Connolly says that reports of these allegations reached the MacDonald's hometown of Ballygar. The time of the trial and that, there was stuff said about them that was totally proved untrue, but it, 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 the people in the area found it difficult to read that and to, have, to know how nice and kind and generous the McDonald's were to hear this about them, that they knew it was totally in, innuendo. Um, now it was all proven so in the end. There's a whole stream of people called to say they were grand, they were cultured, they were very nice, they were very nice to work for. They treated James Clark as though he was one of the family. There's no real evidence that anyone in the family had a motivation for killing anyone else. And they seem to coexist quite comfortably. McCabe's attempts to sort of paint the, pe- the, the family as dysfunctional didn't really wash uh, and didn't hold water. After the evidence about motive, the means and circumstances of these six murders was then laid out. Not so much the why, but the how. One of the exhibits in the courtroom was a pair of men's trousers. At the time of the fire, McCabe was alleged to have been wearing a pair of grey trousers, which were the property of, I think, Peter MacDonald. The bit about the trousers doesn't bother me at all because I've normally common in families for when you're not well off 
for other people who are, you know, have got loads of suits or trousers to give the other people, the people they serve and so whatever clothes are. What poor man mightn't say, well, you know, I could use those trousers. I could use that jacket. Um, and so it, that, to me, wasn't a huge sign. But there was a reason for the importance of the trousers. It seems highly unlikely. Tom Hannigan. That McCabe could have murdered up to six people using a blunt instrument of some type and not have got blood patterns on himself and on his clothing or footwear. Having therefore possibly burnt his own trousers, probably at La Mancha, uh, he was left without a pair of trousers. So he would naturally reach for a pair of trousers, which he then unwittingly wore when he um, went for uh, assistance and when he was standing there watching the firemen and the guardie trying to uh, break into the place. Other bizarre details came out at the trial. Bloodstained and burned or partly burned clothing was found in the house. The men appeared to have had either their clothes torn off or pulled off. At least some of this clothing was removed from the victims as some of it was female clothing and some of it showed signs of having been cut up or cut off. It may have been that maybe those clothes were going to be used in some way to, to burn the body or something. The fact that some clothes were draped back over the body is interesting. I don't see any sexual motivation in that. I see something as a naked body, not appropriate, just cover it. The faces of the victims had any blood on them wiped off. Why would someone wipe uh, the face clean? Maybe there was just something about how the blood was sitting. Just like it would be today, forensic evidence was used to put Henry McCabe at the scene of the crime. Dr. Kelly, the pathologist, testified that he found human blood stains on a shirt and pair of boots recovered from McCabe's home. The most that he could say was that this was human blood. Today, of course, DNA could show whether those blood stains matched any of the victims. The defence suggested that the blood stains on his shirt and boots could have got there when the bodies were removed from the burning house and placed on the lawn and, and McCabe was present at that time. Evening Herald, 11th of November, 1926. There was no falling off in public interest in the proceedings. As on the preceding days, the court was well filled whilst knots of people congregated outside the building seeking admission. The accused man showed no signs of strain which the trial must impose on him and followed the evidence with close attention. When Henry McCabe's granddaughter Mary began to learn more about the case, she found the details difficult to hear. It's been easy and difficult to process. It's easy if you look at it and think of it as not your family, nothing related to you. I read it as if it wasn't a family relative. I read it as if it was something of interest then. You know, because when it did get to me was when it said Mrs McCabe or the children were young or, you know, because then that was my family then, wasn't it? So, so it was a slightly different then when it came to those bits. If my grandfather was... But it just... There's so many little flaws in the case that I felt as somebody just reading it, you know, from outside. How on earth did they convict him or not? As, as if he was just put as a guilty man before the circumstances were properly looked at. And then they made the circumstances fit for him to be the guilty person. I suppose I'm bound to say that as his granddaughter, you know? 
But if you let yourself um, feel anything, that's your grandpa. And you're just thinking, oh, no, why did you do this? Why did you do that? The trial continued with detailed forensic evidence about the poisoning of the victims. A fatal dose would be somewhere in the order of 100 to 200 milligrams, a teaspoonful or so. Tom Hannigan. You have to get that into the body. The person would become violently ill initially within a matter of hours and death, maybe in about 24 hours or so. Mr McCabe was an outdoor servant. Patrick Gageby. And never went beyond the kitchen. So this is a real upstairs-downstairs scenario. And where did he get the arsenic? Where did he get the knowledge of that arsenic? I think it's a legitimate presumption that he, there was arsenic somewhere in the outhouses for gardening purposes. It was legitimately available. But if Henry didn't go into the house, how could he poison them? He might have been able to get into the kitchen and add arsenic to the food while the housekeeper was somewhere else. Part of the evidence was that there was an unused or uneaten food on the range in the kitchen. It's unfortunate that that apparently was not analysed to see if there was arsenic in it. The bottom line is that he almost certainly made them sick, but on its own it did not account for the deaths. McCabe may have been under the impression that even a small amount of arsenic would cause his victims to die very quickly. The prosecution case was that Henry McCabe was trying to cover up something awful, like him killing James Clark by poisoning everyone in the house and then burning it to the ground. But there was a problem. The arsenic levels were not sufficiently high to account for their deaths. Ultimately, for our experts and for Henry McCabe's granddaughter, it came down to this. Who else but Henry McCabe could have been responsible? There were a very significant number of things which pointed towards McCabe. Around this time, he particularly worked late. And the reason for that, which was suggested, was that Mr. Clark had disappeared, apparently, on the Saturday in a huff because he had heard that the house was to be sold. We know that one of the sisters told a neighbour on the Sunday that Jim Clark had gone away. But, of course, James Clark hadn't disappeared in a huff because James Clark was found dead uh, on the morning of the 31st. And it looked like James Clark hadn't been poisoned. There was traces of arsenic too small for determination in the post-mortem sample taken from James Clark. I think the science is consistent with the idea that, that James Clark must have been killed first, probably on the Saturday afternoon after the midday meal, so perhaps James Clark came across Henry McCabe stealing from the McDonald's safe. Once Jim Clark was dead and the McDonald's apparently accepted the idea that Jim Clark had gone away, that meant that McCabe then took over his duties. So that gave him greater access to the house and to the family. But Henry's statements about the days before the fire made it sound like he had no idea that anything sinister was going on. Peter was sick on Monday last and confined to bed, his brother told me. Annie was sick on Monday, Joe told me also. 
I saw Alice down in the kitchen a few times. She seemed to be in her usual health. I last saw Mary McGowan on Monday up to 5pm. She was then in her usual health. He was actually the only person that was seen in the house from Monday afternoon until the bodies were found on Wednesday morning. On the Tuesday, there was no sign of life at La Mantra except for the presence of Henry McCabe. A number of callers to the house on the Tuesday were sent away by Henry McCabe. And then late on Tuesday evening, another death in Malahide would present Henry with an alibi. And Mr Matty Nugent in the village had died. That gave him a very good alibi. On Tuesday night, 30th of March 1926, I was sitting in the kitchen along with Joe, reading the paper. I left about 8 o'clock p.m. and attended a wake in the locality. I left the corpse house at about 7.45 a.m. on Wednesday morning and went home, washed my face and started for McDonald's. Remember, this was when Henry said he discovered the fire. The prosecution did not actually dispute his alibi about the wake. Because forensic evidence was suggesting that the slow-burning fires in the house could have been set earlier in the day. This did not happen after people went to bed. None of the beds had been used. So that's why the prosecution could say it must have happened before, quote, bedtime. Jackie Bates-Gaston says this tells us something about Henry McCabe's personality. He was there calmly at the wake, empathising and being compassionate to his neighbours and Nugents who had lost the, the dad of the family. There was no evidence that he was uh, at all distressed. But at that stage, had he committed all the murders, he was actually sitting on the death of six people who he knew. And for, the, for it to be that cool and calculating, you'd have had to have a personality disposition that allowed you to be able to contain that. Our experts are in little doubt about the guilt of Henry McCabe. I don't know whether he was an intelligent man or not, but he certainly, when he gave evidence, appeared to have an explanation for nearly everything that was said. If he did perpetrate these six murders, um, he was incredibly cool, calculating, uh, manipulative and devious, and very, very well organised to be able to do that. I would be satisfied from my reading of the evidence that the findings were broadly correct and will stand up to modern examination. Personally, I would be convinced of his guilt, but, I mean, that's not really a scientific judgment. For me, the more interesting question is, why did he do it? He had the opportunity to steal money from this pretty wealthy family, and why go down the road of a very macabre, premeditated series of killings in the most gruesome of circumstances. Was he really going to get away with this? The answer might be in a dark secret from Henry's past. He had a previous conviction in Watford, for which he was sentenced in 1907 to three years penal servitude. We found a report on the details of this crime, which wasn't given in evidence at the trial. Watford Observer, August 1907. Charge of attempted murder. Henry McCabe of Herbert Street, Watford, was charged that he, on the 27th of July at Bushy, did feloniously attempt to murder Annie Flitton, stabbing her about the body, face and neck with a pocket knife. On July 27th, in the evening, 
while her master and mistress had gone to Watford. She was getting supper in the kitchen when she heard a ring at the back door bell. She opened the door and saw a defendant standing there. She did not know him to speak to, but he occasionally attended to the garden and was known as the Little Irishman. He asked her if she could tell him where Mr Gascoigne lived, and she said no. He then asked for a drink of water, which she gave him. When he gave her the glass back, he said, I know you are alone in the house. I want you. She said, You don't want me, and gave him a push. He was too quick for her, put his arm around her waist, and struck her in the neck with something. She struggled to get out into the garden and dragged him with her. He struck her several times, and she ran down to the gate. He pushed her down onto the grotto in the garden and stabbed her several times in the neck. She succeeded in getting the knife away from him. Annie Flitton was stabbed more than 20 times in a frenzied attack. So it's difficult to weigh up what happened in uh, 1907 with what happened in 1926. Forensic psychologist Jackie Bates-Gaston. They were significantly different, but yet indicated violence, early violence, which is what we'd be looking for in serious cases of this nature. Coming armed with two very offensive weapons is obviously meant he'd planned it in some form or another, but we don't really know what was in his head at the time, except uh, the medical officer said that he may have suffered from some form of epileptic mania, which is an interesting um, term, but that he himself had observed nothing while he was in Brixton prison. And how would this behaviour be assessed if it happened today? You know, we're looking at psychopathy in different ways these days, but cool calculating without emotion. So McCabe was coming across as very cool and collected after and during those events that were happening in the house. Um, So he would have been described presumably with psychopathic traits um, if he were being assessed today. It is hard to understand why the murders at La Mancha happened, but this previous behaviour might give some explanation. If it were uh, the case that Clark came across uh, Henry McCabe robbing the safe and they got into an altercation and McCabe struck out, perhaps somebody then stumbled upon the murder and then he had to deal with the entire family. So the thought of going back to jail maybe pushed him towards doing the desperate thing. Maybe that was the motivation at the end of the day. Now, the fire should have taken care of everything, but it didn't. Henry's granddaughter, Mary, says she found all of these details hard to hear. I've gone through the stages of innocent and guilty and uh, being fitted up and all the rest of it, you know. And even when I was reading through the papers, I would be going through, see, see, definitely, look, they haven't done this, they haven't done that. They fitted him up here. They just want to get it done and dusted. And then I'd go, oh, no. And I started calling him Grandpa. Uh, which is not a word I've used because I haven't had grandfathers before. And I said, oh, no, Grandpa, why did you say that? There was other evidence found by accident years later that seemed to confirm beyond doubt the guilt of Henry McCabe. Well, someone was digging a garden nearby that McCabe had also worked on it at one time. Um, some of the McDonald's valuables were found. When they dug up valuables and they found them later on, I thought, well, it has to be him. It has to be him, because who on earth would do that, you know? We're only a gardener. After a trial lasting six days, Henry McCabe was convicted of murder. Leave to appeal was refused. 
It was reported that on conviction, Henry shouted from the dock. All I have to say is, God forgive them. I am the victim of bribery and perjury. One of the last lines of the transcript of the trial reads, Prisoner was found guilty and sentence of death passed. Evening Herald, 9th of December, 1926. Last act of grim tragedy. There was between two and 300 people outside the prison. That's Tim Carey. To my knowledge, just the largest crowd outside the prison for an execution. Amongst them was uh, Henry McCabe's wife and a number of his children. Women easily formed the majority of the crowd in the precincts of the prison as early as seven o'clock when it was still dark. From that hour onwards, the crowd rapidly grew and many were concerned in a last minute rush to the scene. As eight o'clock approached, the enclosure outside the prison gate was densely packed and a woman began to recite the rosary. The responses were given by the crowds. A few minutes before the execution hour, Mrs. McCabe, with some relatives, arrived in a motor car. When she alighted, she leaned on the arms of the two women who accompanied her. As she stood outside the prison, she kept her head bowed down and held a rosary beads between her fingers. The crowd pressed round her to catch a glimpse of her features, but she did not raise her head and continued silently praying. At eight o'clock, Henry McCabe would have been executed in the hanghouse of the prison. And shortly after that, a note would have been pinned up on the prison door by a warder informing the public that the death sentence had been carried out on Henry McCabe. The McDonald's have no immediate family, but Paul Connolly says they are remembered back in County Galway. So here we are in the church in Belligar, and you'll see this plaque. It says, a holy mass shall be offered in the church for the MacDonald household, who died at Malahide, Holy Week 1926, and their relatives, once a month in perpetual remembrance, AD 1928. For those left behind then, we can only speculate. It's very hard for the descendants of the victims, of the perpetrators, to come to terms with that, those awful things that happened so long ago. And it's very hard to make sense of it. As we're trying to make sense of it today, it must be even more difficult for someone who loved their dad, their grandfather, uh, very difficult to understand how this could possibly have happened. OK, he was, a, shall we say, a bad man, but my mother was the nicest person you've ever met in your life. I've been very lucky that I've been far enough away that it distanced. But it's part of your past. The case of the murders at La Mancha was hardly mentioned anywhere for a long time. We asked two questions. Would the case be treated differently today? Definitely. Forensic science and investigation techniques have moved on so much. But the answer to our other question is harder to find. Why a seemingly ordinary man committed such an extraordinary crime? It still seems such a huge thing to do to murder those people. It's, it's huge, it's taking life. It's, you know, it's much too much, isn't it?